0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at
1: ecorner.stanford.edu.
2: So today, uh, we have a guy who has a love of music like I do. He he plays a wicked guitar. I'm not sure he brought the guitar. He did bring the music. But he is CEO of a very important company, Optometica. why do I say important and compelling company? It was founded by the chairman of the ophthalmology department here at the School of Medicine at Stanford University, Mark Blumenkrantz. Mark sadly uh, cannot join us today because he's at a conference in Florida, being you know a uh, professor and uh, thought leader in the technologies and science of this. But he, was, uh, he and his board um, recruited this Mark uh, for to join them as CEO um, from after a long history of being at uh, Alcorn and uh, Alcorn Alcorn Alcon, Al- Alcon excuse me uh, tongue twister Alcon and um, you can see I'm not a, a medical science person <laughs> myself, Alcon but a long history at a, that's a major pharma company so he came out from the south where he went to Auburn um, and uh, joined the company recently he's going to tell us all about that and tell us about uh, medical devices. So, let's welcome Mark to Stanford University. Thanks.
0: Tom, thank you. Thanks. Good afternoon, Stanford. How are you guys doing? So, um, let me – number one, let me begin by thanking Tom for, uh, for that introduction. And, uh, you know, I got to meet Tom in 2007 because his brother, uh, Brooke Byers, is the chairman of our board. An Optimetica. So I met him that way, but also met him through the Mayfield Fellows program. We actually have uh, a couple of Mayfield Fellows uh, that are with Optimetica. They're sitting right down here in front, and uh, it's a fantastic program, and Tom and uh, Tina Saley have done a, a wonderful job with it. So Tom asked me to speak about entrepreneurship and leadership, and that's exactly what I'm going to speak to you about this afternoon, but uh, I want to make a foundation statement first, and that is that um, when I was in college, I was an absolutely lousy student. And uh, as a matter of fact, when I interviewed on campus, I developed this kind of novel little technique, at least I thought it was novel. Uh, when the interviewer had asked me for my resume, I would flip it over face down and slide it across the table and say, Listen, why don't you and I just talk for a little bit? Because uh, so, I didn't want him to look down at my GPA. <laughs> and and uh, something must have worked about it because I managed to get a great job on campus and that launched my career and somehow I wound up here today. Uh, so what I'm going to do today is uh, share a number of things with you about my, uh, my lessons that I've learned about entrepreneurship and leadership. As I, as I was thinking about framing uh, this talk, I was trying to think how to do this and, and convey some things uh, to you that might be really helpful. And you know there's a great book by none other than Stanford's own Tina Selig uh, that is called, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. How many of you read, have read this book? So it's a fantastic book. I absolutely love it. Uh, and as I was thinking about how to frame this today, I thought, you know, what? that's kind of what I want to frame, is pass along some of those lessons uh, to you today. Uh, so I thought what I'd do is I'll give you a little bit about my background, uh, then give you a little bit of background about Optometica and then uh, some of these crystallized lessons I've learned over my career about leadership and entrepreneurship. Uh, So let's get going. And Tom gave you actually a a really good uh, rundown on my background. Uh, So that was (laughs) was really good. But uh, I was born in South Alabama, as he mentioned, and uh, I went to school at Auburn University. I got a degree in marketing. And I got my first job through the placement center on campus. I interviewed with a company called Armored Dial, It's a consumer products company. And uh, I got a job as a field sales representative. It was a fantastic, uh, great first job. And uh, I got into it for a couple of years, and I I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot about business. But, you know, I also realized that's not what I wanted to do with my career. Uh, I had, I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so I kind of squirreled away a bunch of money. And uh, after a couple of years in this position, I went into business with two college buddies of mine. Uh, that had founded a company called Donnelly Communications and uh, so I joined them as a partner and uh, Donnelly Communications was a nationwide 800 answering service so uh, you look in the Wall Street Journal you see a full page advertisement that asks for direct response it has an 800 number at the bottom And uh, we would handle the direct response. we maintained a call center 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And uh, then we'd send the the leads to the the company. And so this was a great experience for me. Um, I learned a lot about business. I learned an incredible amount about sales in that position. Uh, But there was one problem. I was absolutely, because it was a booster, we financed it out of our own pocket. I was absolutely starving to death. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, so I made the decision to go into surgical sales, and I joined a company called Greasehopper. Now, Greasehopper was a eighty is a fantastic company, and is an eighty five year old Swiss surgical instrument company, uh, handheld instrumentation, uh, kind of the the Rolls Royce of ophthalmology, exquisite craftsmanship, just astounding. I spent fourteen years at Greasehopper, started as a, a field sales representative. Uh, I worked my way up, I wound up running the US organization and one of the great things I learned in that, in, in that experience, that 14 year experience is that product development done right uh, by a company working with physicians is kind of a symbiotic relationship that is incredibly rewarding. At Grease Harbor we did that very well. Uh, we launched hundreds of new products uh, during that fourteen years and I learned a lot about that, that interacting with physicians and I, I kind of got addicted to it. I mean it just was unbelievable uh, in terms of personal reward. Uh, but uh, so we gained a great reputation enough so that Alcon Laboratories seven billion dollar Alcon at the time division of Nestle now uh, Novartis. Uh, Alcon acquired us in 1998 asked me to come to Texas which I did Uh, integrated Grease Harbor into Alcon. And this was a much different experience for me because a much larger company at the time, I think, were like 11,000 global employees. And Alcon was, once again, another great work experience. I spent almost 10 years there. And uh, Alcon uh, is an incredible culture, wonderful people. I I absolutely loved working there. Uh, It was uh, a place where we had tremendous success. I have the highest respect for that company. Uh, and I thought I was going to finish my career there. You know, massive market share gain. I felt like I had tons of wind in my sails, lots of momentum in my life, in my career. And I thought I would never leave, uh, never leave the company. But not so fast uh, because that entrepreneurial urge was kind of still there and you know, I'll tell you why in a minute. And um, in early 2007, Mark Blumenkranz, Dr. Mark Blumenkranz at Stanford approached me and he said, you know, a company that I founded, Optometica, we're looking for a CEO, and you should be that guy. And I was, I, kn- I knew Mark for 20 years, and you know I was in this great career that people never leave. And I, you know, very respectfully, of course, I'll think about it, Mark. <laughs> and and uh, so uh, I was just a little bit being polite. And then Mark sicked buyers on me. Um, and the second that I met Brooke, and I met Craig Taylor, and I met the people at Optometica that I, that I could meet, Um, I I was really compelled uh, to make a change and made the decision to be the Optometica CEO. Uh, So I told Brooke when I made that decision, I said, man, 23 years in one place, I'm going to have to clear my head a little bit. And the people here that know me know that I love cars and I'm kind of fanatic about it. And I said, so uh, when I make this transition, I'm, w- I'm going to drive from Texas and get in my car and I want to drive down Route 66. I want to drive from Texas to California, take three days and clear my head. And, uh, and so I did. So June the 2nd, 2007, I started driving across the desert, kind of racing, uh, I think 84 there was, that was the, lowest, the slowest I went the whole time. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, about halfway through the desert, you know, I, I found myself asking, what is making me do it? Why am I doing this? I mean this was ab- seemed, felt like absolutely kind of crazy, you know, to, to leave such a great thing and do this. Well, there were a couple of reasons. Um, one is that element of being in medical devices, having breakthrough technology, uh, which I'm going to tell you about was really compelling. And that was really exciting. Optomaticus technology, the stuff that you could see at the time was really exciting. The stuff that was in the lab that was not ready to go yet, was incredibly exciting breakthrough technology. So that was one, the chance to work with Brooke, work with uh, Craig, work with Mark Blumenkranz, Daniel Planker, uh, people at Stanford. Uh, George Marcelino was really kind of the only guy at the time I knew in, in Optometica. Excited about all them, but there was another piece, and this was kind of the tipping piece. That um, as I was driving, there were these haunting lessons in life, things that I'd experienced at a kind of early age that made me say I've got to do this and I'm going to share those with you in a second. But before I do, so I said the first thing was technology that I, you know, I had to uh, have that. So I'm going to share with you a little bit about Optometica, uh, what the company's all about. So Optometica was founded in 2004 uh, and it was intended to address ophthalmology broadly. These are the founders, uh, five people. as Mark Crane's right there. Uh, and they intended to address retina, glaucoma, in cataract surgical instrumentation, femtosecond laser cataract surgical instrumentation, a category that had not even existed. Uh, So that was really uh, compelling. Um, The very first thing that we did at OptoMedico was license pattern scanning laser technology from Stanford. And that became PASCAL, pattern scanning laser, and it's nothing short of a revolutionary treatment for diabetic retinopathy, uh, retinal uh, retinal disease. With each uh, foot pedal depression of the laser, 56 spots are delivered to the eye, much less power, much less collateral damage, a much more comfortable patient experience. So this was a really fantastic product that really changed the way retinal laser is delivered. And we achieved some fantastic milestones. In three and a half years, we sold 600, more than 600 systems in 40 markets around the world, treated more than a million patients, delivered more than 40 million patterns. Uh, to patients' eyes, successfully, some great milestones. And, and that was successful enough that it caught the attention of a distributor of ours in some major markets, Topcon Medical. And last year, in August, Topcon acquired the retina glaucoma part of Optometica. So they acquired our only revenue generating business, uh, which was a great win-win uh, because they got this revolutionary portfolio of products. That uh, was great for them. We felt good about it because they were a great partner. Uh, we were able to then also though turn our attention solely to that femtosecond laser cataract project that had been kind of stewing in the background uh, since the founding of the company. Uh, so that was a fantastic thing for us. And when we were thinking about femtosecond laser cataract surgery as that next step, um, number one, it's a huge market. Does anybody in here know how many cataract procedures are done globally per year? Anybody want to take a guess? Quiet room. 15 to 16 million procedures per year. So we're aiming at a really large market. And um, we asked ourselves sort of aspirational questions. What if we could combine innovative imaging with the precision of femtosecond laser, Could we deliver precision in surgery that could improve patient outcomes? Could we change the procedure and and improve the visual benefit at the end? And you know what? There's some opportunities because traditional cataract surgery has its challenges. What you see here is kind of the way a procedure is done today uh, with uh, manual instrumentation. So this is a forceps that the physician punctures a hole in the anterior capsule. And then they manually, they're trying to tear a perfect circle. This is like cellophane. You're trying to tear a perfect circle of cellophane with the forceps. It's absolutely, it's like the power steering on one of my old cars. It doesn't work very well. So, uh, this, uh, so it can be out of round. These are things that can go, it can be out of round. It can be larger than the target that you intended. As you're doing this, you might get a big remnant or a tag, or you might be making the tear and it go totally out of control and around the equator which is an adverse event. So uh, the reason they try to gain access this way is because they need to get to the cataract in the natural human lens and they use this ultrasound device here and they pulverize it uh, into little pieces and aspirate the nucleus out so they chop and segment it. As they do that they can break that capsule that's on the backside that's an adverse event. So uh, you create this opening in the in the lens. The physician then implants a intraocular lens. It's an implant that stays in the bag and it's made of an an acrylic material and the objective is to have it perfectly seat because that bag shrink wraps around the uh, the lens. But what can happen is if you don't line those up properly it can go out of sync. It can tilt shift the center and what happens when that occurs is the patient gets less than a perfect visual outcome. So real simply That's one of the challenges and that's what we intended to address with the Catalyst Precision Laser System. Uh, So this product is not on the market yet, but it's going to (laughs) be. And uh, uh, this is what it does. It uses precise femtosecond laser to create the circular cut, uh, precise size and shape. It uses femtosecond laser to, to dice this into easily aspiratable cubes Um, that the physician can use without ultrasound, makes precise incisions here in the cornea to address astigmatism, and then it provides multi-plane incisions to enter the eye uh, with that ultrasound device. So um, this is pretty spectacular technology, and we believe it delivers precision that will change everything. Now that's kind of a big statement. But I think this is a landscape shift in this this surgical procedure. By replacing those manual steps, we're gonna take cataract surgery to an entirely new uh, stratosphere. I mean, I I can see everything getting rethought in terms of the things that are used today, which is really exciting. Um, And I think this is the driver of the new standard. What you wind up with ultimately is this implant with a, a precisely positioned capsule precise alignment uh, post the procedure. So that's really, that's really cool. So that's what Optometica is thinking about every day. That's the technology. And so as, uh, as I'm going into work every day and you have this highly energized team working on this technology, working is really excited about what we're doing, I find myself constantly every day managing, you know, the day to day things. And I'm drawing on lessons that I've learned throughout my life. Uh, things that I've learned about being an entrepreneur, things I've learned about leadership. And I say so far because I'm sure every day I'll walk away with something else that I learned. So let me tell you about lesson number one. Uh, And lesson number one is one that I, um, uh, is my year between my senior year of high school and my first year of college. And um, I was a desk clerk in the summertime at a Howard Johnson's hotel on the interstate. And I kind of liked that job as a, a kid because you got to wear a coat and tie. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, now it's not. <laughs> but um, I was a desk work at the Howard Johnson's, and one summer night, car pulls up in front, and this well-dressed gentleman walks out and uh, walks in, and I ask him to sign in. I put the card in front of him. He reached down and picked up a pen and wrote his name, and he wrote Ray Crock. And I stopped him. I put my hand down, and I said, not the Ray Kroc that found a McDonald's. You know, I was 18 years old. It's funny, I, some bizarre coincidence. I had just like read an article, like three days before about him. Or else I probably wouldn't have known who he was. Um, but he and he said, yeah, that's me. And man, I couldn't believe it. I thought what an opportunity to talk to him. So I just hammered him with questions. <laughs> and so uh, he, uh, he said, you know what, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go put my stuff down and I'll come back and I'll sit down and talk to you. Yeah, right. Uh, so, but he did. He put his stuff down. He came back and walked into the lobby, sat down and talked to me. And um, I remember this remarkable conversation. And when he walked out of the door that evening, I remember thinking, man, I want to do what that guy does. I want to be a CEO. I want to create a culture. I want to create a company. And it had this huge impact on me. And so, um, you know, the rest of my life uh, in my work career, every day I'm making decisions. I'm thinking I want to do that. So lesson number one, know what you want set your objectives, I promise you'll achieve it. I promise. Lesson number two, you must have passion. Now, uh, for this lesson, I'm going to go back to when I was interviewing on campus at, uh, at Auburn. And uh, uh, every week, companies came in, and they'd put their names up, and you'd see who you want to interview and sign up. And I saw this company, Armor Dial. You know, this was, you know, in the early 19. Armor Dial, wow, I love their products. I want to interview, so I signed up. And I went into the interview and shook the guy's hand. I sat down and he started asking me the usual questions. And about midway through, he said, what do you, how much do you know about our company? And I said, are you kidding? I love your products. I use them every single day. And he said, uh, really? How is that? And I said, well, Every day that I've been a senior here at Auburn for lunch, my lunch has been a can of Armour Vienna, six saltine crackers, and a Miller light. And he kind of he laughed and he said, uh, You mean you really eat this stuff? And I said, Not only that, I absolutely love it. I would love to sell your product. Now. I knew nothing about sales at that time, absolutely nothing, but I had a lot of passion for Vienna sausage and beer. Uh, <laughs> and um, and so, uh, so that passion got me my job. Uh, that was a really big lesson uh, for me when I, when I learned that, and that, and that enthusiasm uh, has a big role in success. Technique, skill, yes, enthusiasm plays a big role. Lesson number three. Absolutely, no matter what you do, you must learn how to sell. You know, a lot of people think that uh, sales might be something you're kind of born with. You know, you got you're just a natural born salesman. Not true. Sales is a skill. You have to learn how to ask questions. You have to learn how to present, identify needs, handle objections, Do trial closes, close a close should be a natural conclusion to a discussion. It shouldn't be pressured because uh, that means you probably haven't done it right. Um, It's a profession and you know what? Everybody sells. You're gonna sell, I have to sell to my board, I have to sell to my investors, sell to the employees, sell to my spouse, sell to my children. Everybody that you contact with in your lifetime, you're going to have to, in, to sell in some way. It's a great thing to learn. Now, this book, I'm just curious. How many of you have ever seen this book, How to Master the Art of Selling? Uh, so we got a couple. I, when I put this up, I thought, man, I'm really old school. This was printed in 1980. <laughs> um, so, but, but This became almost just like a foundation for me three buddies of mine and I bought the book at the same time and we made it like a lifestyle. We said we've got to be unconsciously competent with this. So we all, you know, room together. We had a big house that we lived in and they said, you know what, if we're going to go to the movie, we're going to have to sell each other to go to the movie. If we're going to go to dinner, you're going to have to sell each other to go to dinner. And it made it, you know, become something that, uh, that we got pretty good at. Learn how to sell. Lesson number four, there's no failure that you can't recover from. You're going to go out and you're going to take a big swing in life. and If you fail, you know what, so what? So, you can recover from it, you know. Uh, there, you're going to be in the weeds in your career and you just you just need to believe in yourself and find a way to get out of it. Now, I had a, a really interesting uh, thing happen here when I was with Donnelly Communications, my own business. I was up to my neck in debt. I didn't have a dime to my name, I, uh, every credit card maxed out. And uh, nevertheless, I believed in my product and I said, you know what, I've got to get to, uh, ad agencies in New York City so I drove from Alabama up to New York City and I was pounding up and down Madison Avenue uh, every day calling out ad agencies and one night I went to the Port Authority bus terminal I was staying in New Jersey and I went to the Port Authority bus terminal to get the bus home I missed it I didn't have any money to get a bus ticket and uh, I was standing in the bus station and I said you know what This feels pretty much like failure (laughs) because things weren't going that well. I had no money, and I was in the Port Authority bus terminal at like midnight. I had no idea how I was going to get home. And uh, so I started looking around, and over in the corner is a guy playing the guitar. Now, Tom said I play the guitar. And I had on a gray pinstripe suit and wingtips with holes in them. And I walked up to the guy, and I said, hey, dude, at some point, you're going to need to go to sleep. And when you do, can I play your guitar? Because I need to get bus fare to go back home. And he said, yeah, sure. And he handed it to me. So I, I got bus fare. Uh, I made some tips. And I uh, <laughs> managed to get home. And then <clears throat> three days later, I got my first job in surgical sales. So I mean, it was just a kind of a, I felt like, man, I'm big time in the weeds. Uh, but it was, a, it was kind of a nice recovery. No failure you can't recover from. Lesson number five. Strategy and tactical implementation equals success. Now strategy is sexy and cool. Everybody loves to talk about strategy but the rubber meets the road in executing a plan. If you can't execute the plan it's not worth the paper it's printed on. Now there's a great example of this at Alcon uh, when I was there. Uh, We had this massive success with the product you see here on the left and it launched at the exact same time as a product by its chief competitor. And at the time, the chief competitor had the lion's share of the market and Alcon was kind of the also-ran. In five or six years, totally flipped the market and Alcon earned more of its fair share. Why? Well, it was great technology, absolutely. You can't do it without that. But it was tactical implementation that made a huge difference. We were intensely focused on managing customers, relationships. Uh, doing the right things every single day, messaging, uh, branding, making sure everything was run like a really well-oiled machine. And that made the difference here. Uh, so that uh, tactical implementation strategy equals success. Now those uh, uh, people here at Optometica uh, get to hear a lot of my sayings over and over and over. This is one of them. Uh, the most dangerous thing in the world is a past success you're still in love with. You know what, you have to live like your best day is always in front of you. You have to live for the future and take the things that you've done in the past and, you know what, they're in your rearview mirror. Uh, You can kind of celebrate them for a little bit, but keep moving. And uh, surviving success is one of the hardest things to do. So there's a great example here if you think about Optometica and Pascal. Pascal, you know, by almost any metric you look at you say, that was a incredible success. I mean we were feeling really good about what we had accomplished and it was a pretty audacious decision to take something or success and just say, okay, we're gonna transact it away. Uh, that was that felt really wild. Um, but you know what, it was because we had our eyes on the goal of the femtosecond laser cataract system, the huge opportunity, we made sure that we were good stewards of what we had built, put in the hands of a company that was going to execute well with it, and, um, and focused on this, this uh, future potential. So uh, uh, best day has to always be in front of you. Lesson number seven, do it for something other than money. Uh, you know, I think uh, if you're focused on money and that's your goal, uh... You're, you're gonna get it pretty quick and you know uh... money is just the byproduct i think of really good work it just kinda shows up uh... if you do things right um, and if uh... if that happens really early then that was kind of a hollow exercise uh... having a higher order goal is really important if you want to drive your career and stay challenged every single day and want to achieve um, so uh... you know I'm fortunate to be in the medical device industry because the products that we make impact people and improve their lives. And not witnessed anywhere better than in this slide right here. So when we were developing the femtosecond system, you know, you do all kinds of bench tests, lab tests, safety studies, all this work to finally get in the clinic. And there does come that day where you use it the first time in humans. And so uh, we set up our clinical trial in the Dominican Republic, and uh, we're screening patients, and one particular woman raised her hand and said, I want to be the first. Really? Why Why do you want to be the first? She said, I want to be the first because I know that if I can help you get this product to market, if I can help you uh, get this uh, into surgery, it will benefit millions of people's vision and improves millions of people's lives. Now, I couldn't have scripted that better. You know what? Those are the moments that you work for. Uh, that's an incredible higher order uh, thing to to feel uh, with your career. So do it for something other than money. Lesson number eight, people do business with people they like. Great example of this is the Topcon transaction last year when we transacted away the retina and glaucoma business. Um, You know and I say that because probably four separate times that I can think of while we were in that negotiation I, I felt like we kinda hit a wall. You know, then I, I thought this might tip the other, this might not happen and the reason, the way that we would get over that is the person at TopCon that was in charge of it on their side and I would get on the phone. We really liked each other. We both shared the vision that this was great for us mm-hmm. and them. We both wanted to make it happen and we would pound through really difficult issues because we believed that, you know what, this is, this is good for both companies. And so uh, uh, business is a contact sport. And uh, I would uh, highly encourage you to think about that and treasure the relationships that you build because uh, uh, they're really meaningful to your success. Lesson number nine, prepare, prepare, prepare. Um, Nothing takes the place of preparation. And uh, building a great game plan and executing it is uh, incredibly important. Uh, Now how many of you are football fans? How many of you are Stanford football fans? Okay, okay. Um, well I've never met Jim Harbaugh, but I would bet money that if I met Jim Harbaugh, he would say that games are won by outstanding recruiting, outstanding training, developing a strategy, practicing that, delivering that on game day. And Stanford did a great job of that this year. You guys, had a, you guys had a pretty great season, so you should feel pretty good. Now, I would be remiss in this conversation if I didn't mention my Auburn Tigers. That, In case you didn't hear, they won the national championship. So. Uh, I love this picture of Gene Chizik, who's the coach at Auburn. Uh, and um, uh, this picture of him with his game plan in his hand, laminated and... You know, uh, if you really, if you ever dive in, see how they do that. They watch film intensely. They think through every single play and scenario so that we're in the heat of battle. They've done all the homework. They know exactly what to do. One of the things I heard Gene Chizik say uh, a lot during the season this year was they'd go in the first half Uh, and they, you know, maybe wouldn't uh, have something just right. They'd have to tweak at halftime. They'd come back and win the game. The Alabama game was 24 to nothing almost. at Half and Auburn came back and won it. So that was uh, was a fantastic example of preparation. Um, Lesson number 10, put the right people in the right seats. Now this is kind of my last lesson, uh, and I kind of did these a little bit in chronological order, but this is probably the single most important thing for you to think about as you launch in your career, making sure the right people are in the right seats. Now, people at Optometica hear me say a lot, weapons don't win battles, people do. Uh, If you don't have the right people in the right seat, you have to correct it. Uh, Everybody on the team probably knows that they're not the right person in the right seat. And you know what, it goes further than you might naturally think. Uh, You know, it's natural when people hear this statement to think, oh, I need to make sure the people that work for me are the right people. But you know what, it goes way beyond that. You need to make sure you have the right seat in your board. You need to make sure you have the right investors. You need to make sure you have the right team. You have the right advisors. Um, You need to make sure that your friends share your values and that you guys are good for each other. And you need to make the right decisions in your personal life. You know, one of the most important decisions I ever made in my life was my my wife uh, and the spouse that I have and she's incredibly supportive. Uh, for me. That's an important decision and that's another way of thinking about having the right people in the right seat. So, um, you know, I started out here by referencing Tina's book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. Uh, So, you know, maybe one day something really cool happens, maybe I write my own book and I was kind of thinking what I would call it and you recall how I started my career? Well, I think I would probably name mine The Vienna Files. Uh, you know, people would think this is like a global business book. It's about Vienna sausages. <laughs> so uh, the subtitle, though, uh, you know, Tina has a really slick one, but mine would be 10 lessons learned during my journey from a tiny South Alabama town to becoming a medical device CEO in Silicon Valley. Where's Tina? Is she? she oh, sorry. Okay, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> So I, I need a little help on the subtitle. That's why I'm a medical device CEO and not, not an author. Uh, but but uh, that's probably what it would be. So now, those are my ten lessons. But I do, because I'm here at Stanford today, I do have one bonus lesson for you guys. And that is I look around this room, and this room is full of choices to be made. And uh, if you think about life, and you think about as you go out in your career, every day when you wake up, you get to make a choice. You get to make a choice to work hard, to have a positive outlook, to stare things in the face and uh, not not be daunted by them. Uh, that's a choice that you get to make. Success is a choice you make. It's a great book by Rick Petino. Uh, I encourage you to pick it up and read it. Um, but you also have an asset behind you that's very powerful. You have a very powerful brand behind you in Stanford. So leverage that brand, leverage your skills, leverage your knowledge, leverage every gift that you have, and go out and do something great with it. So, thanks. Thank so, I think we've uh, got some questions here. Uh, and so, so... I'll start with yes, the first one. Um,
1: as I talked to you before, we, we have a class where we talked about... Uh, you and the company and the decisions that you've made and one of the things we were really curious about is it's very unusual for a company to sell its entire revenue stream basically yeah. and to still remain a company. Yeah. We were wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that in terms of what did it do to the culture? Did the culture change? Did some of the people have to go with the acquisition? Yeah. Where did the money go? Did, yeah. you, did you use that money to change out your investor pool or... If you could just talk a little bit about what went on behind
0: the scenes there and, and how you navigated that. Yeah. that. You, you know, it's, so it's a, uh, uh, let me repeat the question for those of you who uh, may not first. So it's, it was a question about the transaction with TopCon. And uh, when, when we made that decision, what, what impact did it have on, uh, on the, the people did people go with it, uh, how did we make that decision, was it a good uh, a, you know, good thing for everyone, and uh, what happened with the structure of the board, and, uh, and the structure of the company, and um, uh, what else? So, and, and what happened and with the culture, the, the sure, culture you know, and the money. So, um, about the main thing and go on yeah, so you know, it's a really interesting thing. There, there's not a lot of uh, cookbooks on how to do that, uh, you know, to transact away your revenue stream, and so, um, we felt a lot of times like we were sort of blazing some new ground. Um, and uh, the first thing is we had to really think about the, the decision to do that. We, we really thought long and hard and said okay, we need to really be successful and focus on this big opportunity that exists in Cataract. At the same time, my management team and all the people in the company were intensely committed to the customers in the retina business. You know, if you think about it, um, you know, I mean, I spent 23 years in retina. These were not just, cut- these are friends. You know, and so when a product is in the hands of a friend, you feel intensely um, responsible to make sure that they're having a good, good, uh, a good experience. So uh, we, fo- we, we uh, had a lot of discussions about we, if we're going to do this and we're going to, uh, you know, succeed in cataract, we've got to be focused on cataract and this responsibility to what we had already accomplished was very dilutive. And every day, I mean, we, we get in my staff meetings and you know, it, we're constantly managing the amount of discussion about retina in this huge opportunity. It's really hard to do. So we made the decision, it's, it's best for the company to do this. And, um, and then we started thinking about all the elements of, uh, once we decided to do this with TopCon, we got through the negotiations. Then we started thinking about, um, you know, that's got to be successful. I mean, we can't abandon the customers. And so, uh, Topcon was very, uh, very much wanted the employees that manufactured all the skills they had, you know, to go to go with it. And uh, that was kind of a hard thing to do because, you know, what we're in right in the middle of Silicon Valley. And one of the things I learned really quickly is that if people aren't happy with their jobs, they can probably go across the street around noon and get another one. <laughs> so uh, so it was really uh, delicate. And it required a lot of personal sitting down with people, talking with them, you know, making sure they understood. Uh, we did things as a company to make sure that it was, uh, you know, uh, it, was, it was, was good for them in a lot of ways. and uh, And then we maintain some interaction at a pretty high level through the transaction to, to make that occur. Um, what happened to the culture of Optometica is, uh, is is really kind of amazing that, I remember walking into the office uh, when some of the milestones of the transaction were passed and walking in the office and saying, you know, all I'm thinking about today is cataract. I mean, this is just like incredible. You know, it was, it was like, instant clarity um, but then what also happens is you get that instant clarity and you also go man we've got so much to do because now you're thinking of it at a deeper level is like wow we got a lot, of, a lot to do and so um, we, uh, we had some key objectives and things that everybody had to get focused on and it became just this intense effort. Um, very exciting but we went from a revenue generating company to kind of back to a startup but a really, really well infrastructured startup. Um, So uh, one of the things that occurs is we kept some infrastructure that you wouldn't typically have in a startup. You know we had some commercial infrastructure that maybe didn't match up with the rent so we kept that and you know we're not gonna we're not gonna change that I mean those are great people we work long and hard to get to so uh, our board made a great commitment that we're gonna we're not gonna play to just play in Cataract we're playing to win and uh, so we kept that infrastructure. The money from the transaction, you know, our, our board said we want you guys to succeed, um, and uh, and we want you to have everything that you need. And so it's you know it stayed, and uh, it's really a remarkable thing. I mean, I yeah, you know, I was talking with Brooke. I mean, he's had so many experiences, and he said, "Man, this is like a case study." Uh, I mean, it's it, and one of the things I'm I'm really proudest of is that. Uh, the, the employees that went to TopCon, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't lose anybody. Uh, and that was remarkable. So it's pretty pretty. Does that answer your? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yes.
1: So this is a, a lecture on entrepreneurship. And you talked a lot about entrepreneurial lessons. But you also said that in your job,
0: before coming off to Medica, that you, were, you felt like you had made it and you were there for 20 years. So, and you were approached. So do you think if you weren't approached and kind of convinced that you would have made a kind of entrepreneurial jump? That, you know that's a that's a great question. And uh, I was just talking with somebody that I was trying to recruit yesterday, and I said, I yeah, I was I was kind of a little bit of a you know uh, job tree hugger of sorts. You know that I I loved what I was doing, and I you know uh, I do have this kind of uh, you know positive outlook, and I can always find the uh, uh, the positive and stuff. And so I. Um, even that said though uh i knew that i needed to do something different because you know with the domestic retina business at alcon i mean we'd grown to you know market share in like the 80 plus ballpark and i was i was kind of starting to i mean it was a wonderful experience but i was like today you know this year we're going to go from 84 to 86 okay <laughs> you know, i mean that wasn't as challenging to me so i was i was getting a little bit bored and uh and you know that conversation with Ray Kroc, I know that, you know, it's just like, it's probably, you know, just a really short time one. That had such an impact on me, and it was always nagging. So if you think, you think about uh, the thing where I went from Dial to Donnelly, you know, that was a big risk, that was entrepreneurial. Actually, Greasehaber was very entrepreneurial. It was a smaller company, you know, and then back to Optometica. Um, if, I, if, if I hadn't been approached, I think I would have probably, within a year or two would have done it. But uh, I don't know that I'd ever have found such a perfect uh, opportunity. I mean, this was, this was spectacular. Somebody else?
1: So I took a question in terms of like the company timeline. Was um, the sale of Pascal like in the works before you were brought in as a CEO, or was that sort of something that you took a jump to?
0: Uh, great question, and it was not even remotely considered. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you, it was is pretty interesting that uh, we reached the end of, I'm getting my, so we reached the end of 2009. You know, we're going through our strategic planning process, and uh, you know, kind of one of the great things about Optometica is um, uh, we're like an innovation factory. I mean, I mean, we have so many smart people that are so creative that when you kind of look at our pipeline, it's ridiculous. I mean, uh, you know, and so we're kind of at the end of the year and we're planning out our strategy. It's like we can't, we can't do all this, uh, you know, and it, but we want to. You know, this could be a company and this could be a company and this could be. And so um, we're thinking about that and, and it was feeling really funny just letting stuff sit. And so in that strategic discussion at the end of 2009, we said, you know, we got to, we got to do something different. we we got to focus on cataract and we made the decision in probably a couple of months. I mean, what,
1: like what went beyond the decision of not just bringing on another team to, or making the business bigger and still retaining
0: the kind of scale? That's an option uh, but it, you know, it would have been such a scaling and we had, you know, um, the femtosecond laser cataract opportunity is so immediate and compelling uh, that that uh, as much as I think every one of us would like to do that, I, and I'll tell you there was one there was one product in particular in the retina transaction. It was in the pipeline, and um, I'll say it was you know it was kind of absolutely you know deep in my heart. as like I felt like it was my you know uh, you know my baby or something. It was the hardest thing in the world to not take that product to market. Um, but man, I promise you. Topcon will do it and it will be a grand slam You know, and, and I, I'm glad it's in their hands because those are great people and they'll do a great job with it, yeah. You know. Yes? Uh, you
2: mentioned uh, your first patient was in the Dominican Republic. Yes. Uh, would you care to mention why the Dominican Republic is supposed to say the United States of America?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, the Dominican is a FDA approved site. And uh, so we worked with their IRB, uh, their internal review board, and uh, gained access to it. We had a great uh, ability to work with a clinic down there that uh, the head of our medical advisory board uh, had trained him. It was a close relationship. It was uh, secluded, I mean, because we have a a project that people uh, would love to know a lot about. Uh, It was nice to be able to shroud it a little bit in secrecy, and so that that was a good reason for it. Yes. Um, as CEO, you've had to make like a lot of really difficult decisions. Like, can you talk a little bit more about how you motivate the people to like stand behind you on all these tough, tough like decisions? Yeah, um, you know, there's that's uh, uh, a great question. And so, how uh, I think the, the the only way to motivate people to stand behind something is if they believe in it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I try as much as I can to, uh, you know, to be very open about things that we're doing, why we're doing them. And, uh, and you know, if somebody doesn't believe in something, I kind of take it, you know, as a responsibility. I kind of want to sit down with them as much as I can and uh, make sure that, that, that I help them understand uh, the elements of it. I mean, you know, every decision uh, has some element that is uh, maybe not great. Uh, you know, that you can't have everything perfect. And so, I think the only way to do that is just with, uh, with you know, personal contact and transparency and uh, helping people understand what's really driving it and what the outcome of it is, what the intended outcome. Uh, yes?
1: So your first lesson learned was about achieving things and your goals. Yeah. Um, clearly you achieved your goal of becoming CEO. I'm just curious how your career goals have changed over the years and. Um, Sort
0: of how you had to change yourself around those. Yeah, so uh, I am a, uh, I'll say I was a victim of one thing that I learned really quickly. Um, And uh, when I was a, you know, starving kid that was up to my neck in debt and I didn't have uh, anything, and my wingtips, recall, had, uh, they had holes in them, um, there was a point that, man, I was pretty focused on money. And I had, it's a really interesting thing that, like a lot of good salespeople, or whatever, you know, the way salespeople are. Driving. I had this car that I wanted, so we're back to cars. I had this car that I wanted, and I put a picture. I said, "I'm going to buy that car." And it um, is really, you know, expensive. And I said, "So, so." I put the picture on my wall, and I said, "When I achieve this, I'm going to go buy that car." And I achieved that, and I went down to the dealership and I bought it, and I drove it home. Huh? It was a uh, so I'm a huge I'm a huge uh, domestic car supporter as a this was in 1988 it was a Cadillac Alante it was a roadster made in Italy that was on the Ferrari t- uh, assembly line but it was a Cadillac so I'm a huge domestic car uh, person um, anyway so uh, so uh, I bought the car I drove it home and I put it in my garage and I remember getting out of it and going. This doesn't feel good, you know. It's like, man, I, you know, I worked so hard for this, and now here it is, and I, you know, I can take it now to the Seven Eleven and get a cup of coffee. It just, you know, and it was, you know it's, it's, not, it's not a great thing. So, um, so that really made me start turning my attention uh, and recognizing what I was doing, and you know, uh, talking to patients and things. So, uh, that was a huge that was a huge shift. Um, And I guess the other uh, shift was just recognizing the importance of taking a swing. You know, uh, I say these lessons I've learned, you know, are in chronological order. uh, And it's because I learned them along the way, you know, uh, grappling with failure and learning from it and saying, you know, there's a point in time at which I just said, so what, you know. um, uh, You know, I remember talking with my wife when I was making the decision uh, to come to come out to California, and you know, sitting down and uh, you know, Alcon really, uh, you know, uh, to their credit, I mean, they really uh, did a lot to get me to stay there, and I, I thought that was just a you know the most uh, respectful thing. I mean, I was, I was just kind of appreciated it very much. But I remember talking with my wife and saying, you know, we could go to. California, we could lose absolutely everything, or you know, you can stay married to me. And, <laughs> and she said, Yes, I was okay with it, and we're going. <laughs> yes?
1: You talked about putting a lot of the right people in the right places, and uh, Automatic has like three teams right, the management team, the advisory board, and the directors. I was curious, kind of, how you went about selecting members of each team and then the dynamic between those three, because you are a medical device company and your management team. Has a much fewer people who are bread and butter part of medical advice yeah. than before, right? And I was wondering how the medical advisory board influenced your teams.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so great, great question about the management team. I, I, th- you know, as I think about the senior man, I've hired everybody but one person, and he was one of the founders, and yeah, uh, you know, he's one of the guys that I mentioned. That I love, I love working with every day. So, um, when it came time to hire those people. Um, you know, it's really interesting, I, I uh, uh, one of the things about Silicon Valley is, you, I mean, you can use recruiters and you can uh, define what you want, but there's also this, you know, this uh, network of people with your investors and advisors and everything. And so kind of the word went out that we were looking for people and, you know, some great talent uh, came to us. Uh, so uh, uh, we're a pretty high-caliber company, and so people would, fun, you know, hear the opportunity at Optometica for... A CFO and somebody at Kleiner Perkins sent us somebody that they used to work with in another company, um, and uh, you know one thing about it because uh, I think this is really important is uh, the the um, the dynamic of the team is really important. You know you don't want clone. It's like a it's like building a football team. You know you want them to work well together, but you want different personalities and different points of view and. And uh, it's really incredible to me that in, in when I sit down to interview, I, I kind of know in like five minutes. I, I mean, I know really fast if they're going to be the person. And there have been times that I've interviewed somebody, and they just we've gone through a long uh, series of interviews, and something comes out in the end. I'm like, you know, yeah, I knew that like right up front. Something wasn't right, you know. Uh, so so I think that dynamic is uh, is a critical part of it. Did I answer your question? Okay.
2: Okay. Yes. That Ray Kroc story is quite inspiring. And Based on that, it reminds
0: me of the story of Edison when he first uncovered the lamp, uh, the light bulb. And the young reporter asked him, he said, Mr. Edison, that's phenomenal, that's incredible. you finally did it after you failed a thousand times, and he just calmly looked at him and he said, Young man, I did not fail a thousand times. I just found a thousand different ways that it did not work. It, it. didn't work, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I've heard that story. I think it's a really cool story. Anybody else? Uh, questions? Yes.
1: Um, obviously, I mean, you have great business talent and all of those things. Else, you wouldn't be where you are now. But do you think like you were born like with that skill set, and <coughs> you were born to go into business to become a professional CEO? Do you think that? to develop
0: along the way? Um, If you ask my two older brothers, they'd say absolutely not. (laughs) But, uh, but, um, so, uh, I, I felt like I was born, I I always felt like I was uh, born with a desire to do something that made a difference, uh, you know. And, you know, maybe that's one of the things that's been a driver is, um, you know, there are times where I didn't feel like I was able to leave a thumbprint on something. And those times started making me get bored. Um, you know, it's it's really rewarding to be able to build or do something that can make a difference, and you can point back and you know and say, yeah, as a that's an accomplishment, that's pretty good. And so, I think that's what has has been a driver. Um, so, so I you know I, I was I think I was born maybe with just a desire to, kind of a positive outlook and a desire to do something. And maybe a certain, uh, I don't really care that I didn't do this part well, we're still going to win somehow. (laughs) Yes.
1: Um, As I told you before, one of the things we like to do is we like to look at the whole person and understand a little bit about your personal life. So this isn't (laughs) really a fair question, but I know the students will enjoy hearing the answer. Um, We noticed that that you have a budding artist in your family. And uh, your daughter is a is a is a musician and a, a singer. And we're just wondering, taking everything you've learned as an entrepreneur, are you helping your daughter with her career? And what are you learning about that industry as opposed to this industry? I, Can you take yeah. lessons and apply them
0: there? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And uh, so uh, that my my so I feel like a lucky parent. I've got. My daughter like that, and I've got my son's a really uh, kind of gifted athlete, you know that I go watch practice football and everything but so my so my daughter uh uh is a singer, and uh because I play the guitar um, I'm really interested in it and uh absolutely i mean so so the music industry is so different now and uh you know, there's. Uh, she has a website. Uh, she makes her own CDs. She writes her own songs, and I'm really involved in that. Uh, she performs live, and I, um, a lot of the times I'm her backup guitar player. She plays with something called. Uh, Bread and Roses. So she and I, multiple times during the year, we'll go play in uh, drug rehab centers or you know unwed mother homes, and so we go we go do that. And we'll do a set, and she's open at you know Los Gatos Music in the park. She opened for the Jonas Brothers one time, so she's really excited. And she's uh, right now auditioning uh, for music school. I probably better not say where. <laughs> but uh, but um, and this was kind of really a big compliment uh, for me is. Uh, she went there were twenty two hundred students uh that you know uh wanted to get in this school and they brought a hundred down and they and she was one of them and and um she asked me to go with her and be her backup on the audition and I thought well that's pretty cool. I've never been so nervous in all my life <laughs> as that it was because I thought you know if she if I mess this up and she doesn't get in that music school you know it could be dad you didn't get me a <laughs> so, so but yeah uh, and actually my wife is in, um, amazing with uh, the help she gives her and, and, uh, and you know, kind of marketing and stuff, and she's got a great agent. she has got the agent that was Smash Mouth's agent. So, wow. so.
2: What's her
0: name? Just for everybody to check it out. Oh, uh, AlexisForche.com. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. All right. Yes. really impressed at how you're able to balance that kind of family involvement along with your personal career. And um, I just want to know like what challenges did you face (coughs) in having to balance that and how do you manage to do both so well? Um, You know, I hope I do it well, I try, Uh, you know, but So first, you just, I think you have to make the decision to do that, uh, you know, so, so for example, when, uh, when it hits foot, it uh, used to be, I can't, I can't right now because they close the practices, but used to be when it hit football season as my son's uh, football practice, every day I would just say, you know what, I'm going to finish up work in time to go watch his practice, you know, and go to his games. and uh, Because, you know what, I've got one son and it's going to, you know, and I'm not going to miss any minute that I can, you know. So that becomes a decision that you have to make and, uh, you know, as long, so that means I have to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and start doing email then, <laughs> you know, so you just make those choices and then try and manage your schedule around it. It's as much as I want to do it, you know, as much as I try, there's still plenty that you miss. but. Those are. uh, I remember there was uh, an instance uh, in our family where uh, we lost one of our relatives, and I remember at that moment uh, thinking uh, that that if my kids come to me and say, "Hey, Dad, you want to toss the football?" I'm saying, "Go put your shoes on." You know, if I if I'm working and something, I'm going to take the time uh, because you don't get that back.
2: So, thank you. Thank you.